Welcome to the PRBI Insider presented by PR Boutiques International. The very best PR results require tailored strategies and individual attention. Effective techniques vary considerably from market to market and culture to culture. So when we create a program, rather than laying out prescribed solutions lacking in freshness and vitality, we start with careful consideration of our clients' objectives and plan a creative roadmap. This is Joy Scott, your host for PRBI Insider. I'm the president of Scott Public Relations, a boutique PR firm that specializes in healthcare, insurance, and technology. I'm a member of PRBI and a past president. We're very excited about our topic today. It's timely, critically important to everyone, including those of us who are communications professionals. That topic is fake news. In part one of this podcast, we will cover what fake news is and some of the legal ramifications around it. In part two, we'll look at what remedies exist to deal with fake news. We have two distinguished guests to enlighten us about this controversial topic. Lucy Siegel of Lucy Siegel LLC in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and Amy Rotenberg of Rotenberg Associates, Washington, D.C., Lucy Siegel is the principal of communications consulting firm Lucy Siegel LLC. She specializes in helping both startups and overseas-based companies build their visibility in the U.S. market. She also advises clients on their communication strategies and needs and help them find the resources they need to carry out their PR programs. Lucy had an early grounding in journalism and corporate communications before she entered the PR agency world. Her many years of communications experience include founding, running, and then selling two different agencies in the New York City market. You can learn more about her at her website, lucysiegel.com. Amy Rotenberg is the founder and president of Rotenberg Associates, a crisis management firm in Washington, D.C. Amy combines nearly two decades of experience in crisis communications with 10 years as a First Amendment media lawyer and trial attorney. She provides strategic counsel and crisis communications to clients facing high-stakes publicity in connection with federal and state litigation, government investigations, product recalls, employee malfeasance, media probes, and mergers and acquisitions, and IPOs and spinoffs. Amy has extensive experience working with clients in healthcare, higher education, food, financial services, professional sports, nonprofits, and the news media. And she's spoken extensively on the subject of fake news. You can learn more about Amy Rotenberg at www.rotenbergassoc.com. That's rotenbergassoc.com. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Joy. It's great to be here. Looking forward to the discussion. As are we all. So the topic today is critically important, not only to communications professionals, but really to every citizen. Fake news, also known as junk news, alternative facts, or hoax news, is a form of news consisting of deliberate disinformation or hoaxes spread via traditional news media or online social media. It's the prevalence of these digital sources that have really increased the use of fake news which can be widely spread in social media and find its way into mainstream media as well. 
Fake news is usually published with the intent to mislead and damage an individual or group or to gain financially or politically. And you can see on your when you're online, clickbait stories on social media with these outlandish headlines are using the same techniques as fake news. So here's some examples. A misleading scientific study later refuted, arguing that vaccines in children can cause autism. And as a result, millions of families are afraid to have their children vaccinated. Another classic one is the story of a political candidate that was supposedly running a child porn ring at a pizza parlor. This was not only damaging its polls, but inspired a man to storm the restaurant with a rifle determined to free the children that he believed to be imprisoned there. And today, every day, there's numerous stories of fake cures or preventive measures for COVID-19 online and in social media, stories that the whole pandemic is a hoax, misinformation and disinformation that's endangering the lives of millions. Lucy, can you talk about fake news in the context of misinformation and disinformation and maybe explain the difference to us? Joy, fake news includes both disinformation and misinformation. Misinformation is untrue, inaccurate. For example, it could be a false rumor or a misunderstanding of the facts that get passed around. Disinformation is malicious, false material that is deliberately spread to deceive people and change public opinion. We hear a lot about fake news in politics, but does it affect businesses as well? And what are the risks to businesses? Yes, both misinformation and disinformation can affect businesses. An example of misinformation in business could be a false rumor that a company's new product is going to be launched several months before the company actually is planning to launch it. Even though misinformation isn't intended to harm anyone, it could easily have negative consequences. For example, it could result in harmful fluctuations of the company's stock price, or it could cause the company's customers to delay purchasing an older product, in the example I just gave, thinking that they'd be able to buy the new product right away. An example of disinformation in business is when someone deliberately spreads harmful rumors or lies about a company. This might be done by a competitor trying to make their own product look better by comparison, or it could be done by an investor hoping to profit from stock fluctuations. Obviously, disinformation is unethical. So Amy, as a PR professional and an attorney, can you explain to us what some of the legal consequences might be by publishing fake news, if indeed there are any? Well, Joy, the legal consequences depends on where the fake information is published and who is publishing. So to begin with, if the false information is presented by mainstream media, and by that I mean newspapers, broadcasts, or cable TV, or their digital counterparts, those NSPs are responsible for the truth of the content that they publish, and they can be sued for defamation and risk extraordinary financial exposure and liability. This means that mainstream media must investigate the facts and they must find credible verification of the information they intend to publish. And they can't just republish defamatory or false statements from elsewhere either. The exception to this, of course, is if claims are made in legal filings. Those can be reported without separate fact verification under something called the fair report privilege. If we're talking about social media 
And if the individual poster on social media is known, that individual can be sued for defamation for posting false and defamatory information. But it's not so easy because often it's difficult to locate those persons to serve them with a lawsuit. And most of the time, those persons have no money to pay damages. And so they're basically judgment proof. Sometimes a lawyer letter, a cease and desist letter may work to stop future posting or to get the individual to remove false and defamatory posts, but that doesn't always work. Finally, if someone who posts on social media is anonymous, there really is less opportunity to hold the platform. And I'm talking about Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. It's hard to hold that platform legally accountable because social media platforms are considered more like public utilities than content providers. And they have less responsibility to fact check content that is posted by others than tra traditional media does. In 1987, the U.S. courts ruled that news media no longer had to abide by the Fairness Doctrine, which had previously required media to objectively present both sides of an issue. What role has this played in media's activities in reporting the truth and being objective? What we've seen since 1987 is a siloing of news directed at a targeted audience, most noticeably with cable television, but on the web too. Fox News speaks to its audience. MSNBC and CNN speak to their audiences. Viewers are basically considered customers, and each network wants to deliver what their customers want. This has created an echo chamber and has frankly deprived our citizens of the opportunity to be fully informed, consider both sides of an issue, and reason for themselves, unless, of course, they consult multiple news providers. In addition, Joy, there has been really a relaxation in newsroom standards and journalistic guidelines that blur the lines between news and entertainment and news and opinion. It's not so much that this blurring contributes to fake news as it's just frankly harder for the public to discern what is fact and what is the reporter's interpretation of those facts or their limited presentation of facts or the commentator's own biased opinions. It's the revenue pressure for eyeballs and clicks that have led newsrooms and journalists to use more active, more inflammatory language in reporting the news than we've ever seen before. And because of weakening of the fairness doctrine, they're allowed to do that. What if a news outlet presents only one side of an issue or it provides commentary that's not factual? It seems like this happens often and that it isn't checked. You're right. And this is really troubling. You can tune in to CNN and Fox on any given day, and it's if they live in two completely different countries, different universes, what is featured on one of those networks does not even appear on the other and vice versa. It's up to the subjects of the false information to correct through whatever means they can, going directly to the news outlet, going directly to the speaker, even if that speaker is a government official, et cetera, or maybe even utilizing paid advertising directly on the offending network or platform if needed. Amy, it seems like we should be awash in lawsuits over this because there does seem to be quite a bit of false information that makes its way into so-called news outlets. 
How come that doesn't seem to be the case, that people aren't suing? Well, the first thing I'll say is, you know, lawsuits, litigation is a very expensive and clumsy means to have to address this. And that's partly the reason why you don't see a lot of it. But it doesn't mean actually that the law is not being used in order to discipline these media outlets behind the scenes. I know in my practice, when I'm representing clients, I spend a lot of time engaging directly with news organizations, with the reporters, with the editors, with the producers, to make sure they understand that they've gotten the story wrong, that they're responsible for it, that they need to correct it. And if they don't, we could bring legal action. And that has often been very effective to get the stories corrected, to get stories retracted, and even in cases where the damage is already done, to get some monetary damages for clients. Those things go on behind the scenes all the time. We just as the public may not know about it unless it appears as a formal lawsuit that the media organization wants to fight. So let's turn our attention to social media. A great deal of disinformation is spread on social media channels. Amy, could you comment about the responsibility of social media publishers to see that what shows up on their channels is actually accurate? There are already laws limiting hate speech, but it seems like those are disregarded on social media. Well, as I talked about a little bit earlier, Social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, do not have a requirement to fact check. They're viewed basically as bulletin boards where people can post whatever they want, regardless of its truth or falsity. It's true. Many of these platforms allow anonymous posts, which has turned many sites into massive bullying and defamation chambers where people name and shame other people and companies with abandon. But each platform does have rules, and many of which are now being enhanced to prevent the posting specifically of hate speech, incitement of violence, and the proliferation of debunked conspiracy theories. We've seen recently that Facebook and Twitter have removed false statements, for example, of President Trump spreading misinformation about COVID remedies They've disabled accounts linked to the conspiracy group QAnon. I have had success with some of my clients getting defamatory posts blocked on Facebook and on Yelp, particularly in regard to policies that these social media sites have against organized employee harassment of companies where they can see that it's an organized campaign being done by current and former employees. There's a policy against those appearing as reviews, and those can be blocked. So we are seeing these policies, and they can be used. I personally would like to see some additional regulations that make social media more responsible to fact check in areas that undermine or degrade civil public discourse. We're all aware that there's a debate going on now between tech companies and lawmakers to determine where to draw the line on those regulations. I personally would like to see better identification of users, more transparency into user accounts, 
easier ways to unmask anonymous or disguised users, and maybe even, I guess I would favor the prohibiting of anonymous postings entirely. Because if you can't identify the poster of false information, then nobody is accountable and we promote massive abuse. Lucy, do you have any comments on this a very important topic? I totally agree with what Amy said. And I think the biggest problem is the anonymous nature of postings online. Well, I agree with both of you and would also suggest possibly strengthening the responsibilities of individuals in public service to verify the accuracy of their statements and to be accountable if they are not accurate. It seems like in this day and age when we're so connected, we have to look at free speech through the lens of causing harm to others. There are already restrictions prohibiting the use of speech to incite violence. These prohibitions often don't seem to be enforced in social media or other platforms, although, as Amy, as you were saying, much of that may be taking place behind the scenes. On a broader level, are we getting so used to fake news that the truth doesn't even matter anymore? Doesn't everybody have their own set of alternative facts? And is this just something that we are going to have to learn to adapt and live with? Well, there's no such thing as alternative facts. Facts are facts. Sorry, Kellyanne Conway, who coined the term. (laughs) (laughs) How we interpret facts matters and the framework for how we understand facts and data matters. But making stuff up is not facts and it's not alternative facts. It's just lies and propaganda. We as a society need to be able to distinguish between facts and data and science on the one hand and efforts to spin, deceive, and create false narratives on the other. Education is really the key. People just have to be taught from the time they're children how to distinguish what's real and what isn't real. They need to be able to question everything that they hear and read. And unfortunately, Maybe we're starting that now with a younger generation, but older generation just doesn't get it. Yeah, that's a big undertaking. It seems like we are moving forward with some initiatives that are some remedies, identifying people who are posting, strengthening the role of social media platforms to identify inaccurate information, holding public figures to a standard of accountability. So... Let's go to another topic, which we know we are living in time of great social and political unrest. There are individuals and groups that are finding new opportunities to talk about past discrimination and oppression. Unfortunately, this is also leading to a a cancel culture. How can we distinguish different narratives and differing viewpoints from truth? How do we make as readers and listeners those kinds of distinctions? Joy, that's a really, really great and complicated question. When speaking about events that impact an individual directly, each person, of course, has their own interpretation of their experience and process it within the framework of their own life. This is their narrative, what some people call their truth. In the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, people have been given broad opportunity to speak their truth. The sharing of personal experiences, of course, allows people to be heard, and often the narratives are factually true and can and should be acknowledged. But we also have to understand that those testimonials are what they are. They're personal experiences 
that on their own are not subject to cross-examination or true fact-checking. And there just might be another side to the story, another interpretation too. It's possible to be respectful of each narrative and to recognize the differences in what people believe. And in most cases, those differences in narrative will just remain unresolved. But there are times where the truth must be determined, as in a legal proceeding or an investigation. And there, the facts matter, and finding the ultimate truth depends on facts. You mentioned also cancel culture. And for our listeners here, cancel culture includes the boycotting, firing, disrupting speakers at universities, removing of speech and symbols from public fora, silencing. That's what we mean when you hear the phrase cancel culture. So with regard to that, as our societal norms and values evolve, canceling is an attempt to silence those with a different viewpoint or silence or remove from public attention those views that are no longer in vogue, that have not evolved or have been quote unquote woke. This is a very dangerous to our First Amendment freedoms, no matter how much I might like the new viewpoints. Canceling the old viewpoints is very dangerous, with the exception of incitements to violence and hate speech. Nobody should be told what to think and believe or speak. Our founders understood that the best antidote to unpopular ideas, even truly offensive speech, was more speech and more ideas. The marketplace of ideas should not be in the business of silencing, but allow for the best ideas to win. Thank you, Lucy and Amy. We will conclude part one of our podcast on fake news now. Please join us for part two as we examine what we as citizens and as communications professionals can do to ameliorate the negative effects of fake news. Thank you for listening to the PRBI Insider featuring members of the PR Boutique's International Association. Never miss an episode. Go to PRBIinsider.com and follow us in your favorite podcast app or subscribe via email. Learn more about PRBI at PRBoutiques.com.